Good morning, everybody. We're ready to get our meeting underway, and I would like to get started in the usual way by observing a moment of silence. Thank you. Now I'll ask Cora Louise Belford to come forward and lead us in the serenity prayer. Hi, everybody. I'm Cora Louise Belford, and a very grateful alcoholic, grateful for this weekend and to all of you for being here. And would you join me in saying the serenity prayer? Shall we all stand? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen. We have a few announcements, as usual, and I'd like to make those at this time. Uh, remind all, I'd like to remind all of you uh, that there will be no picture-taking at these sessions, but that panoramic photographs will be available for purchase at the Fontainebleau and also in the lobby of Convention Hall out here. Also, please, no taping <coughs> of meetings. Uh, all the meetings uh, here and... Uh, all of those at the hotel, with the exception of the workshops, uh, have been taped, and these tapes are available at the Fontainebleau and here at Convention Hall. The orders are, uh, can be placed. Uh, as you know, free bus service is available to and from Convention Hall here from the major hotels. Uh, schedules are available at the information booth in the Fontainebleau and your convention badge is your admission ticket. There are still souvenir programs and pens available uh, in the font at the Fontainebleau, and uh, best cartoons from the Grapevine, and favorite editorials from the Al-Anon Forum. Both of these are also available at the Headquarters Hotel and here at Convention Hall. I've been asked to... Uh, announce uh, to request Bill Cottrell from Hamilton, Ontario, to please contact Hector at the Hotel Waldman. Uh, I believe that I was in error last night when I announced that the reception for the host committee would be from 1 to 3 this afternoon. That reception will be from 3 to 5. I'm sorry for having given you the wrong information. Reception for the host committee at the Fontainebleau from 3 to 5 this afternoon. I'd just like to remind you that uh, there is a lost and found department at the uh, information booth at the Fontainebleau and also a message center there. I'm told that there are many messages uh, on the message board there which have not been picked up, so you might just want to check that out. Now it's my pleasure to introduce to you our chairman for this meeting, Dr. Jack. Folks, we have a tremendous thrill. Our prayers have been answered. Bill is here. And we'll be coming later.
Dear folks, there is always something new in one's AA life. And what do you think it is with me this morning? It is that I am absolutely speechless. <laughs> that is almost absolutely speechless. As I look out across this crowd, there floats back to me a mighty assurance. And this is a mighty assurance for AA's future. That indeed, it will go on for so long as God wants us. The other thing I would like to set on the record is my tremendous gratitude at being able to be with you in this finest hour of our closing meeting. So I can only say, may God bless and keep you and Alcoholics Anonymous forever. classroom in a church school just a little south of West Palm Beach. And a little over the big window overlooking the St. Lucie River are the words, joy is the one infallible sign of the presence of God. Joy is in this place this morning. Joy has been in this place last night, the night before last, and the world over in AA. I think it was at the first anniversary dinner more than 25 years ago of AA in the town where I was then living, Rochester, New York, that AA number three spoke. And for the first time, I heard that wonderful prayer of St. Francis, which to me is almost like the serenity prayer. AA's prayer. In most of the places where I've seen it printed, it starts out, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. And the word make to me is almost a demand. And that isn't what we mean. So when I use it myself, I say, may I be. And for, for us in AA, that prayer is daily, weekly, hourly answered. Because when we say, 
Where there is hatred, may I bring love. We see evidences of that every time we do a 12-step call. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And as you people demonstrate in your own life that there is hope, that there is acceptance, that there is compassion, you bring faith. Where there is despair, despair that you know so well, you demonstrate that there is hope. And we can go on. And then that part where we need, which we need so much, which I need so much, help me to seek rather to understand than to be understood. So often, almost all the time, we so want to be understood that we turn the thing around backwards. Help us to seek rather to love than to be loved. And this, so often, as people, we turn around and put it the other way. And then, as it ends, it is in giving that we receive. So far as I am personally concerned, in my relationships with you, with AAs, everywhere I go, with those people whom you send to us as trustees on the board with whom we work so closely, Whatever little I can give, I have received back manyfold. So it is a great privilege for me to be part of you, a great privilege for me to be here as your embassy this morning. This is particularly true because it has been my privilege several times to have had a little while to talk person to person with our next speaker, who has been very influential, both nationally and internationally, in the background in AA, as a part of the Catholic Clergy Conference, in the background trying to overcome the apprehension that the Church had that AA, as it began, was a religious order who might perhaps be competing. So it is a great privilege for me to bring to you this morning Father John Ford, who has been one of AA's friends for many, many years. I bring you Father Ford. Thank you very much, Dr. Jack. I liked that introduction because it was short and sweet. You get all kinds of introductions if you go, along, go around talking very much. One of the most interesting ones that I have received, I think I received, 
one time when I was talking to a group of psychiatric nurses at a mental institution in Massachusetts, and the subject of my talk was psychiatry and religion. And the chairman, the priest who introduced me, by a slip of the tongue, introduced me as Father Freud. Another introduction I liked very much was one that I got, oh, I guess it's almost 20 years ago in Boston, one of the, my early days of my association with AAs, when I was talking at an AA meeting and the chairman wanted to make me feel at home, and it was a very complimentary introduction, actually, because what he said was, Father Ford is not an alcoholic, but we all wish that he was. <laughs> Since the meeting this morning is the spiritual meeting, I thought that I would talk to you for a few minutes. Uh, not too many. They have lights here. It's all set up. You know, the signal lights. I don't know when the alarm goes off, but they have lights anyway. But I thought that I would talk to you about the spiritual sickness of alcoholism because it is a spiritual sickness, among other things. About 1,400 years ago, St. Benedict wrote a rule for his monks, and he had rules for drinking. And he talked about things like abstinence, and he said for those that wanted to practice total abstinence, that was a gift, a special gift that God gave them. He advised moderation. He spoke about excess. Uh, he had a touch of humor in his way of talking about things. He said that although many people said that wine was not a drink suitable for monks at all, nevertheless, he said, since the monks of our day cannot be convinced of this, uh, we think it wise to set down a certain measure. And he set down the measure in ordinary circumstances of what he called one hemina of wine a day. Now, that hemina, how much is that? I understand that among the Benedictine fathers there are various schools of thought <laughs> as to just how much the hemina amounts to, but actually it wasn't a great deal. It was about the size of today's beer bottle, and the wine in those days was probably only 7 or 8 percent and I don't know how far a hard-working man would get on that much a day. But St. Benedict didn't say anything about alcoholism, and he didn't say anything about the sickness of alcoholism, because that idea is comparatively new. It isn't entirely new. I guess they spoke of alcoholism as a sickness 150 years ago, even in this country. But certainly in modern times, it's only during the last 30 or 40 years that we have talked seriously about alcoholism as a sickness. And one of the questions that clergymen are asked very frequently and that I am asked frequently is this. Is alcoholism a moral problem or is it a sickness? And of course they have you on the horns of a dilemma. It's kind of a lawyer's question because whichever ever one you pick, you're in trouble. And it reminds me of a paradox which still exists. There still exists today, as a matter of fact, a certain number of people, not very many, but there are a certain number of lay therapists and even some medical men who say that alcoholism is not a sickness, it's a vice. But the people who are saying this the loudest are running sanatoriums for alcoholics. On the other hand, the vast majority of the medical profession, of course, recognize alcoholism as a sickness, and AA certainly recognizes it as a sickness. And although AA says that alcoholism is a sickness, it doesn't run any sanatoriums. There are some AA people who do, but the medicine that AA provides for the sickness is the medicine of the 12 steps 
of Alcoholics Anonymous, those 12 precious steps for whom, for which we thank God. I was going to say, I was going to say the 12 steps for which we thank Bill, but he wouldn't put it that way himself, because I know that he thinks of himself inasmuch as he is the author of those steps and jotted them down in 20 minutes one day, 35 years ago. Although he is the author of them, he considers himself only an instrument and an instrument of God, and so he would agree with me in gratitude to God for making him an instrument in that way. And I also wish to express my thankfulness this morning that Bill was able to make that brief appearance. Wasn't it wonderful to have him with us just for a moment? At any rate, when people ask me whether alcoholism is a sickness or a moral problem, I have to answer, in my opinion, it's both. And that's the way I get off the horns of the dilemma. Certainly, uh, alcoholism involves moral problems. Every alcoholic is ready to admit that. And you don't have to wait to hear confessions to know it because the alcoholics at their meetings get up and tell you about the moral problems that they have been involved in as a result of their drinking. And, of course, all human behavior is a moral problem of one kind or another. Now, in spite of the fact that the overwhelming majority of the medical profession call alcoholism a sickness, there is still some resistance to the idea. And I think that one of the reasons why there is a certain amount of resistance to the idea of alcoholism as a sickness is the fact that sometimes you hear exaggerated statements. People say, alcoholism is a sickness just like cancer, or just like heart trouble, or just like tuberculosis, or just like diabetes. But it isn't just like them. It's different, because it involves human behavior. And the human behavior which is involved is a kind of human behavior that just doesn't fit. It doesn't measure up. It doesn't measure up to the requirements of the law, or it doesn't require, measure up to the requirements of Emily Post. It just doesn't measure up. And that's why the behavior is different, and that's why the sickness is different. When I first became acquainted with AAs around Boston, there was a man there who used to talk about alcoholism as a sickness, and he used to explain how it was like diabetes, that just as the diabetic can't take any sugar into his system without getting sick, so the alcoholic can't take any alcohol into his system without getting sick. And he said, that's true. But, he said, I never knew a diabetic calling up another diabetic and saying, I've got a couple of pounds of sugar in my room. Come on over and we'll, we'll go into a coma together. At any rate, I think the exaggerations of the sickness idea turn people off. Another thing that religious people think of, especially the clergy, is that if you tell people that alcoholism is a sickness, they will uh, think that it undermines the responsibility that the alcoholic has for his drinking. Now, I've known some alcoholics who use that excuse for their drinking. The man that comes home and his wife it berates him for his drinking, and he says, don't blame me. I'm a sick man. You told me yourself that I was an alcoholic, and alcoholism is a sickness. But I have not heard about that very often. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of people who are drinking too much, including the alcoholics, have been reading that alcoholism is a sickness for years. They read it in all the magazines and the newspapers, and they read it with a very clear conscience. They read it and they see alcoholism as a sickness. That's a fact. That's a fact, they say. Joe so-and-so has that. <laughs> they don't say it about themselves. But when they do discover that they are alcoholics and that they have a sickness, at the same time, they discover that there is something that they can do about it, something they ought to do about it. And certainly, nobody has ever accused AA 
of reducing in alcoholics their sense of responsibility for themselves and their conduct and their others and the, the goodwill of others, the good behavior of others, because in AA there has been a growing sense of responsibility, both on the individual level and on the social level, with regard to the drinking problems of themselves and of all. Certainly AA does not undermine responsibility. Why do I call alcoholism a sickness? Well, first of all, because the medical profession does. I think that they are the best ones to tell us what is meant by the word sickness and whether this condition measures up to it. And the overwhelming majority say that it is a sickness. But to me, personally, the reason I call it a sickness is this. If alcoholism is not a sickness, why can't an alcoholic learn how to drink moderately? But no matter how long he tries and no matter how hard he tries, he never seems to be able to do that. He can't learn to drink moderately. If you're looking for a definition, you could almost use it and say an alcoholic is a person who cannot learn how to drink moderately, no matter how hard he tries, no matter how long he tries, no matter how many different ways he tries to do it. That's something that's inside of him. Whether it's physiological or psychological or both, I don't know. But whatever it is in him that makes it impossible for him to learn how to drink moderately, I call a sickness. And I leave it up to the doctors to figure out what the sickness is. When I talk about moderation, of course, I am talking about something that is a virtue. The use of God's creatures in moderation is virtue. And the virtue that's involved in the case of alcohol is the virtue of sobriety. And I've often been in the habit of telling people that there are two ways of practicing it. I'm not telling it to you, I can't say it to alcoholics, but I do say to others that there are two ways of practicing the virtue of sobriety. One way is by abstaining from the use of alcoholic beverages and doing that for a supernatural motive, doing it out of the love of God, not drinking at all. The other way is keeping one's drinking within the bounds of true moderation and doing that for the love of God. That's virtuous too. I said that once at a meeting in Canada, in Alberta, and unfortunately the newspaper picked it up and the headline in the paper the next morning was this. Drinking is virtuous, says priest. <laughs> and uh, still more unfortunately, the headline was picked up by the Associated Press and went all over the United States and I started getting letters from here and from there. One interesting letter came to me from France where a lady had read it in the Paris edition of the Herald Tribune, which was still being published then. This was years ago. And uh, she wrote to me from Nice, and she said that she was on the sands at Nice, sunning herself at 10 o'clock in the morning when she picked up the Paris edition of the Herald Tribune and opened it up and found that beautiful headline. And she said to herself, well, God bless Father Ford. <laughs> she said, and I went right up to the hotel, she said, and had two beers. Now... You see, you, you never know the good you're doing. <laughs> I don't know whether the lady had a problem or not, but there was something a little bit suspicious about her eye catching that headline at 10 o'clock in the morning and going right up to the hotel then. It didn't take much. It didn't take much to get her started. But for the alcoholic, of course, there is only one way of practicing that virtue of sobriety, and that is by total abstinence. And I think that the sickness can be described as whatever it is within him which makes it impossible for him to learn how to drink in moderation. And it has been customary for a long time to speak of this sickness as a triple sickness, a sickness of the body, a sickness of the mind, and a sickness of the soul. Not that you can separate the three out into three clear categories. They overrun one another. But those three things are in there. And I leave it to the doctors 
the medical doctors to say what the sickness of the body is, what the physiological basis is. I leave it to the doctors, the psychiatrists, to say what the psychological basis is, what the sickness of the mind is. But since this is a spiritual meeting, I think I ought to say something about what I mean by the sickness of the soul and why I call alcoholism a sickness of the soul. First of all, it's because of what you people have told me. It's the experience of alcoholics themselves. They tell me what has happened in their own lives. I've listened to them over and over again, hundreds of times at AA meetings, and so many have said that they began to drink normally. Some didn't, but many did. But after a while, they became enamored of the anesthetic, the beautiful anesthetic effect of alcoholism. The beautiful anesthetic effect of alcohol, I should say. Because literally, it helped them to feel no pain. It helped them to get something off their backs that was there. And many of the people that have spoken at these meetings to whom I have listened have described how they have gone downhill spiritually year after year as their alcoholism grew on them and lost one by one the values that they had learned as children in church and Sunday school and school from their parents wherever they learned them so that one by one those things were gone. First, I suppose, honesty would go, then something else would go. Finally, many would end in despair and would be ready to throw God himself out the window. Not that this happened to everybody, but it happened to so many that this going downhill spiritually was characteristic, really characteristic of the process of alcoholism. That is spiritual sickness. But what is the medicine that has been working so well to cure the sickness, whatever it is? We come back to the 12 precious steps. I've been around the country a lot, talking to alcoholics everywhere, and to me, the ones who are most successful in AA, the ones who take it seriously, and the ones on whose faces you can see that look of peace and serenity, are the ones who take the 12 steps seriously. I don't say they... I don't say that they practice them perfectly. Who could? But they are trying to practice the 12 steps as well as they can. These are the recovered or recovering alcoholics, whatever you want to call them. And those 12 steps are spiritual steps. And my argument is this, that if spiritual medicine is the thing that works best in curing the sickness, then the sickness must be partially spiritual. If the medicine is spiritual medicine, and if it works, and it does, then the sickness is at least partly a spiritual sickness. In addition to the experience of AA, I would like to point to these symptoms of the sickness, which I think are spiritual symptoms. And the first, perhaps most outstanding one to my mind, is the blindness of the alcoholic while he is still drinking to spiritual values. I heard somebody talk about that yesterday, a doctor who was talking about not only about drinking but about other drugs, not only drinking alcohol, the most common drug there is, the most common form of drug addiction is alcoholism, but he was talking about other drugs too, and he said, while in the throes of addiction, a person is blind. And I'm reminded, just incidentally, of the reason that St. Thomas Aquinas gave why it was wrong to get drunk. He said drunkenness keeps the mind from being turned toward God. That's the reason it's wrong, from a moral point of view. But to get back to the blindness, I don't have to describe to you how blind an alcoholic is while he is still drinking about the fact that drinking is his problem. I was going to give you an example of that, but I think you've heard plenty of examples. And uh, 
one person can outdo the other in telling about cases he has known where people simply cannot see. They are locked in that phase of complete blindness. And in spite of the fact that they are so lonely, they are sick with loneliness, they've had so much trouble that they are sick with trouble, they have lost so much that they are sick from their losses, in spite of all these things, they still do not see. And it is not because of lack of intelligence. Some of the smartest people in the world are locked in that phase of blindness. Now, I call that a symptom of a spiritual sickness. Another symptom is the kind of depression that goes with alcoholism. Of course, this depression of spirit is also a psychological thing, and I don't want to infringe on the psychiatrists and their expression of it, their explanation of it, but depression of soul is a sickness of the spirit. It is a spiritual sickness. And it is most remarkable how the AA steps can be used at times to help with that phase of the sickness, too. I was talking with a priest friend of mine recently, and he told me something in his own experience which impressed me very much. He had never been able to stay sober for more than seven months, and the thing that always set him off when he got, over the, got through seven months one way or another was a fit of depression descending upon him. Well, he got into AA, and he made a new start, and he was in an, in an institution that was based on AA principles. And he came up to this period of seven months, and he suddenly felt the cloud of depression settling down over his head. And he was scared stiff. He didn't want to drink. And he said to himself, I think I can use the steps on depression the way I can use it on alcohol. And this is the way it happened to him. He took the first three steps and put them together, and he started walking up and down in his room one morning right after breakfast, and he wrote down on a card, one, I can't, two, you can, you, God, can, three, you, God, will. He started walking up and down after breakfast, and the depression was getting worse and worse, and he walked all that day, all that night, reciting these three phrases, not hysterically, but quietly, and all the next day, I can't, you can, you will, and at the end of that second day, the depression left him. He had 36 hours of it, and he's never had it since. That was years ago that it happened to him. Of course, depression is a spiritual symptom, and the person who goes into depression has not only a psychological sickness, but a spiritual sickness too. And I thought it was worthwhile mentioning the fact that the steps of AA are tools that can be used for that kind of sickness even without direct reference to alcohol. But thank God we have learned through the experience of alcoholics and through the grace of God that they can be used for alcoholism, which affects so many people without throwing them into depression. You wonder sometimes why they aren't in depression, but they are not. Another, another symptom of spiritual sickness is also one of these half-psychological, half-spiritual things, and that is compulsion. The idea of compulsion, I think, is sometimes misunderstood because people say, well, if it's just compulsion, you haven't got any free will left. There's no will left at all. Well, if there were no free will, you couldn't do anything. But compulsion is a matter of degree. It affects different people at different times in different ways, and it affects the very same person at different times in different ways. So that compulsion is something that comes over a person because of the kind of thinking that he's doing.
And if you could only break the chain of thoughts that leads up to the compulsive thinking, the person wouldn't start drinking. That's why they always used to say in AA, and I suppose they still say it, that it isn't your drinking that gets you stinking, it's your stinking thinking that gets you drinking. And uh, I suppose you're all familiar with the person who says, I can take it or leave it. I don't drink compulsively. I decide whether to drink or not. But I just like to drink, and when I feel like drinking, I do. And a person like that sometimes comes into AA, and he's been sent there by a doctor or by his wife or even by the judge, and he says, I don't really need this. I can take it or leave it. But he always takes it. <laughs> but he says he can take it or leave it. And they used to tell people in AA, and perhaps they still do, why don't you try the barroom test? This is an example of how compulsive thinking works. Why don't you try the barroom test? Go into a barroom every day in the afternoon at 5 o'clock and have just two drinks of your favorite drink. By the way, I don't recommend this to people. Uh, you know what, how I'd fit with the wife of an alcoholic if he goes home and tells her that Father Ford told me to go to a barroom every afternoon at 5 o'clock and have just two drinks of his favorite drink. Just two. No more. If you want the test to last not quite so long, let him have three. And he's supposed to do this every day for 90 days. Now, what happens when he tries to do it? This is the man who says and really believes that he can take it or leave it. He goes into the barroom the first night. He takes drink number one, and it goes down probably quicker than the others. And he's taking number two before the others have started their second. And he finishes it. He says, now I can go home. And he does. He does. The first night. And he may do it the second night. And he may do it the third night. But sooner or later, and long before the 90 days are up, something is going to happen to him after the second drink. And he is suddenly going to think, I've proved it already. I don't have to prove it. I can take it or leave it. And he begins to think of drink number three in a very peculiar, compulsive, obsessive way. He thinks of drink number three in such a way that he can't think of anything else. He can't think of all the reasons that he needs, that, all the reasons that he has for not drinking. Maybe he's in trouble with his wife, his family, the judge, I don't know what. But he can't think of anything else except drink number three. So what does he do? His mind is lit up with the thought of number three. There in the background are all those reasons, but they aren't real to him. They have no effect on him because he can only think of that one thing. The psychiatrists even have a nice big name for it. They call it the monoideistic narrowing of consciousness. It narrows down to one idea, and he can't think of anything else, so he takes number three and tosses it off, and then he's off to the races. Now, you can tell me if you want to that all he needs is motivation enough, and he won't take number three. But this man has all the motivation in the world, but it doesn't get through to him while he's thinking this way about number three. The thinking doesn't get through to him because he's thinking compulsively and obsessively about drink number three. If you set fire to the barroom, everybody's going to run out of the barroom, the alcoholics and everybody else. But I'll say this, that the alcoholic will finish his drink before he runs out. <laughs> I call that a sickness, that kind of thinking. I call that part of the spiritual sickness of alcoholism, that compulsive thinking. But remember, it's a matter of degree, and it's not something that operates at all times. It's a great mistake to tell an alcoholic, if you take a single drink, you'll get drunk. Because so often they have taken a single drink and gotten away with it and haven't got drunk. No, but they never know whether they're going to get drunk or not if they take a single drink. Nobody ever thought that St. Paul was an alcoholic but many an alcoholic will see himself, I think, in these words of St. Paul. He addressed them to the Romans. He said, the law, as we know, is something spiritual. 
I am a thing of flesh and blood, sold into the slavery of sin. My own actions bewilder me. What I do is not what I wish to do, but something which I hate. And so I am handed over as a captive to that disposition towards sin which my lower self contains. Pitiable creature that I am, who is to set me free from a nature thus doomed to death? Nothing else than the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what cure is there for this spiritual sickness? Well, if the two leading things in the sickness are blindness, and something that I haven't mentioned because the time is running out, but it's this idea of self-will, self-centeredness, what the big book calls self-will-run riot. If those are the principal symptoms of the spiritual sickness, what is the cure? Well, the cure for self-will-run riot is surrender. Surrender to something outside ourselves. Surrender to anything at first. It doesn't matter what it is. To be brought low. To be brought by the force of circumstances or the grace of God or whatever it is to one's knees. Surrender as long as it is surrender to something outside of oneself. Now is that religion to surrender to something outside yourself? Well, if it is merely surrender to anything, some object, it isn't religion. But if it is surrender to God, then it's the very essence of religion. The very essence of religion is the surrender of oneself to God. And I think that for, the be for beginners very often who in the course of their drinking have lost their contact with God and who have begun to think in terms of agnosticism, either they're atheists or they think they don't believe in God or they don't know about it any longer, don't want to hear about it anymore, very often the beginning of religion is this surrender to the group or to some power outside themselves. And I think AA has a wonderful expression in using a higher power, something higher than me. That's the thing to which I surrender. I often told my students, and one of them mentioned it here recently, that uh, people used to say, well, I've known Catholics that go into AA, they fell away from their faith and the practice of their faith while they were drinking. They went into AA and sobered up, and they st still didn't get their faith back. Of course, the great majority did, but some of them did not. Well, I said, what would you rather deal with, a sober agnostic or a drunken agnostic? <laughs> And whoever has problems with the spiritual side and the idea of God at least should realize all I can do is start from where I am. But the thing I'm asking for is a surrender to something outside of oneself as a beginning. Because even if that something is not God, it is very easily becomes the beginning of religion. The second point is light for blindness. And I heard uh, Dr. Richardson the other day talk about how, how much he was impressed by seeing at an AA meeting 20 or 25 years ago the phrase, but for the grace of God. Now, when I talk about grace theologically, I mean that God himself gives us light to understand and gives us the strength to do what uh, he tells us is good. I see my light has gone on here, so I'm going to finish very quickly now. Actually, what we are asking God to do to us when we ask for his grace, we ask him to tempt us to do something good. First, to give us a good idea and then make it attractive to us so that we will want to do it. That is what we mean by grace, by the grace of God. And when you ask for it, it's a prayer. And when you get it, it's a grace. We are all blind, not just alcoholics. We are all self-willed, not just alcoholics. And our prayer should be for ourselves, whoever we are, for the grace of God. And we should say, God, give me the grace to see, the light to see what is good. 
and give me the strength and the will and the temptation to do what is good. Why am I for AA? All for AA 100%. I have to sum it up after 20 years in these three reasons. It's because AA is everywhere. AA doesn't cost anything. And AA works better than anything else I know. I was at a banquet in Boston, and this too was about 20 years ago, and there were two priests there, an older priest who was very skeptical about AA and a younger priest who was enthusiastic about it. And the older priest said, as they were leaving the hall after hearing these talks about how I found God and how I found religion and I found this and found that and found sobriety, he said, what have these people got that we haven't got? And the young priest answered, Results. these lights burning when I came up here. I don't know what he meant by that. But they remind me of a story that's one of my favorites, which uh, I know you'll enjoy. About the telephone way back in the early days. I don't know how many of you have seen the ones that we used to have that hung on the wall. There wasn't any central switchboard. Everybody was on the same line, and if you wanted to ring... A certain neighbor down the street, you'd ring one long and one short, and if it was somebody else, it was one long and two short, and so on. And one of the more prosperous farmers in this northern New Hampshire town had one of the first telephones, and it was quite a curiosity. His neighbors had come in and looked the thing over, and oh and on, they wound it, winded up and try it out. And one warm Sunday afternoon after they had gone through the routine, they were sitting out on the front porch in the rocking chairs with their feet on the railing, and the telephone rang. Rang again. Rang a third time and a fourth time. Jed, ain't that your ring? Yep. Ain't you going to answer it? Nope. You ain't? Why not? And put that in for my convenience, not theirs. <laughs> We can't say that about these lights. <laughs> <laughs> 